Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. On today's episode, I have Rendell Eric on again as a guest. We recorded a hunt breakdown last fall on his Iowa buck, so if you haven't listened to that one yet, it's worth doing so. Today's discussion is more focused on postseason scouting, however. He's got a goal of hitting the 300 mile mark this season, and at the time I'm posting, he's already pretty close to, if not over 100. Instead of spending large amounts of time on ultra-vast landscapes, Rendelaire casts a net over dozens of smaller properties to keep tabs on. In this podcast, we discuss what he looks for, how he stays efficient, how he qualifies a public property that's worth coming back to, and how he's thinking about the overall fall plan during that process. Before we dive in, a quick message about Spartan Forge. The app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. A huge feature is the Intel tab, which allows hunters to view the upcoming detailed forecast in an area, including temperature, pressure, wind, moon data, but it also provides the proprietary deer movement prediction algorithm based on collared GPS deer studies. Instead of stating whether or not this will be a good day or a bad day to hunt, the app predicts the type of movement most likely based on the conditions, whether it's core area movement, transition area movement, or full range daylight activity. You can use that information to help inform your hunt. The app also has built-in journaling features and a fully featured map, which you can use to e-scout and navigate in the field, view property boundaries, place and manage waypoints, and view multiple different types of imagery. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Out of the last, uh, we'll say four days, have you been out in the woods pretty much every day? Yeah, pretty much. I did a ton of miles yesterday, found like five or six really good spots, I think. Found some high walls on the river that butt up to the hill country. So they have to come up the side of that high wall. It funnels them up to the food because they can't go up that. It's like a cliff on both sides of the river bottom. It just drops like over 100 feet straight down. So it funnels them up on this little finger ridge on both sides of the river bottom. So it's not just like a outside bend that has the bank cut away it's like a canyon almost yeah it's like a cliff that just drops off from the hill country because like the hill country butts up to the river bottom and the river bottom turns into like ag land yeah huh we have some stuff like like... oh sorry go ahead we have some stuff that's kind of like that in uh a place that i hunt in wisconsin but it's it's like a big rocky bluff on both sides to where you got just you know 20 foot drop off and then there's maybe like 10 foot of angled dirt and then another 20 foot drop off. It's pretty good for, for Turkey hunting. They like to roost in that. I don't know if they can just like hear their gobble echo more in that type of habitat, especially if you get like a bend in the river. It's like a little amphitheater, but yeah, those places are pretty cool. Yeah. And, and down in the river bottom, there's some oxbows like you were talking about. There's like four series of them. So just all the bucks are bedded down on those oxbow tips, and then they work their way up across that river, and then they come up that little finger ridge to come up to the hay field that the DNR has planted up there. I just had a guy ask me about <clears throat> oxbow and oxbow bedding and usage yesterday. Um, so I'm curious because it's fresh in my mind. 
when you see the betting on the Oxbows, are you usually seeing that like maybe let's say one or two bucks is betting on an Oxbow? Is it more common that you get an Oxbow and maybe you got that little, you know, like thicker chunk of vegetation on it and there's like, let's say 10 does and then bucks will just kind of have their own or do you see them all kind of using the same ones? I think the bucks are usually right on the tip. The does kind of filter in like maybe halfway up the oxbow, the bed, and then the buck will be on the very end, right where the water is, so he can just drop right off. That's where I found all the buck beds yesterday. It was like right on the very end of the oxbow, right next to the water. Then he just has his exit trails dumping off into the water, or he'll come out to the river bottom. And he usually has like a primary scrape right where the oxbow opens up. Now, will he usually still be betting where he's got like cover around him 360 to where like if you paddled by in a kayak, like you wouldn't be able to see him? Yeah, you're not going to see him. The ones I found yesterday, they yeah. had like the thickest cover on the tip was where the, most of the dominant like mature buck beds were. If they are wide open, then, you know, nothing's going to be there really. Just got to have cover on it. And so if you were going to hunt a spot like that, you just, you can only hunt as close as you can to like where the does are betting if there's does in the same one and just hope that he's the last deer that comes out and gets there before dark. Yeah. I'm probably going to try to hunt that scrape, the primary scrape. <clears throat> Which is at the base, the base of the oxbow. Yeah, it's right, right where the river bottom meets the oxbow. Okay. There'll be like a main trail going down the river bottom and then there'll be a break off where they turn to go out to the oxbow and there's usually a scrape right there. If there's a tree that's good enough to have a scrape on it. And then access preferably from the river where the wind is blowing, not quite down the oxbow, but kind of like the direction you're accessing from. So it's like a just off and then you can just yeah. pop right up off the river, get in that first tree and you have visibility to that scrape on kind of that inside turn. Yeah. Definitely just off when, like the ones I found yesterday were like uh, south wind bedding. So I'd want to hunt it like a southwest wind. You could come up the river or you could slide down from the east and come up the drop into the river bottom and slide up. Use like the early seasons when I thought I would hunt it because all the foliage is on and all the river bottom super tall with like canary grass and stuff then i could slide up in there real slow and get in the tree yeah that makes sense and those types of spots i imagine too you can if you're hunting close enough to where the actual water is you probably hunt them over and over again without blowing them out yeah the ones the one i found yesterday the best one you have to hunt it off the river bottom mainland okay yeah, there's no tree right on that bend that you can get up in. I have to be in the actual bottom. So I'm probably going to come off the main, that drop down off that hill country and slide in. So, I mean, it's probably a one, one and done, maybe two and done. Now, if you're hunting that type of stuff during the rut, would you be focusing more on the higher stuff or would you still be down on that river bottom? I think the bucks are going to run that security cover. They're used to it. I'd stay in the bottom. I'd probably move back to the main river bottom trail, which was at the base of the hill country where the river bottom and the hills meet. Yep. And you find that because it seems like there's always sets of trails in river bottom and that type of that type of context, right? You got 
the stuff in the, the hills, and a lot of times it seems like I find trails dropping off the points into the river bottom. And then there'd be that trail kind of yeah. like right where it flattens out, like you said, especially if it's like a long stretch of river. And then there'll also be that trail that's kind of like paralleling the water edge, it seems like. Yeah, that's what I found yesterday was the, what, just what you're saying. And uh, about, a, I don't know, a quarter of the way up out of the bottom, they had a side hill, like kind of like a wind tunnel trail running down. Yep. But it wasn't used very often. And if I found any kind of pressure, they were on that wind tunnel trail. Okay. Like if I, if I seen a tree stand, it seemed like all the guys wanted to be on that wind tunnel trail, but they're dropping their thermals in the evening right until where all the bucks are bedded at. So I probably wouldn't want to be up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember we found a spot scouting last fall. We went in blind to a spot that was <clears throat> accessed via like a John boat and ended up not really finding that much for buck signs. So we left, but there was a spot in there where you could tell the deer were kind of using the flat bottom areas and this one area of the hill country got really close to the water edge to where it was like marshy kind of swampy boggy stuff where like it was kind of backwater ish. And then you had like, we'll say 20 yards of total space between where it turns into hard ground and you have like, you know, a 60 degree like vertical slope going up to where Sure, there was deer up above, like on top of that stuff, but anything that was like going from flat ground and wanted to stay on the flat ground wasn't going to cut right through that little pinch. Yeah, that's what I found like on those two high walls I found. It was like those main river bottom trail that runs right underneath. They both just went right up the two high walls. And if there's any bedding on the oxbows or whatever, they were all going across or out of the oxbows and they were going up those high walls they weren't really i didn't find any like major trails going up to the like the actual hill country they were huh. just using those high walls interesting it always seems like when i'm scouting river bottom you get like either the scenario in which stuff is super wide open and you can see like 200 yards or it's like ultra thick and you can see like 10 yards and it's like yeah. there's, there's no in between <laughs> Yeah, like right now everything's dead, so you could see I could see across the whole river bottom, but early season all that canary reed grass will be like chest high. So you'll have all the kinds of bedding in there and stuff, so I think it'll be good to sneak in there. So I like hunting early for that type of terrain. What what do they eat early? Cuz I'm thinking back to a different spot that we turkey hunted last spring that was also off a river, and in some areas it was like ultra ultra wide open where it was either like dirt or you had that real tall canary grass, like you said, we did find some deer sign in there, but it was like, it, it kind of reminded me of an oak savanna where you have just like prairie grass. And then you have like these big oak trees that are kind of like sporadically placed throughout the landscape, but there wouldn't be oak trees down the river bottom. They're like big cottonwoods and whatever else. So I'm wondering in those types of areas, you know, what are those deer feeding on? I think a lot, a lot of times they drop off into that river or creek and they eat some of that aquatic stuff, okay. different types of plants. The ag bumps up to this spot too, so they could just go right across and hit the beans or corn. Or they can go up onto the hill country and feed on like the red oaks if they're dropping or whatnot, and they can move on out to that like uh, hayfield that's up top that I found. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
So I think the deer, like in that scenario, they're betting there, but I think they're moving more. So I think your odds of having a buck come by you is a little bit better because they have to move to the food. It's not like true hill country where they can just walk 30 yards from their bed and they got like thousands of white oaks or red oaks to feed on. You know, they have to do a little bit more traveling to get to the food. Yeah, that stuff's super hard to hunt early season. Yeah, for sure. Unless you're just after any deer. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So one of the things I wanted to, I guess, talk about and, you know, it's kind of the, the bulk and I guess focus of this podcast is spring scouting because I think for most of the people in the country, at least in the, like the Midwest area where we live, it pretty much starts, I would say, I would say now, or maybe even like a couple of weeks prior to now, I, for me, I kind of draw the line at when the snow is still there, then it's like still winter scouting in my mind, regardless of what the calendar date is. But then once yeah. that snow melts and I can see the old scrapes and like rut sign from the prior year, that's when it turns into spring scouting for me. So for us, we still got maybe four inches, but we're supposed to get temps in the forties or fifties and then I'll melt that off. So it'll be prime scouting season when this podcast launches. Yeah. I don't usually scout at all until the snow melts and I can actually see cause I find it's just a waste of time almost unless you like, can really pay attention to like the lick branch and stuff like that which i don't know sometimes the old one can throw you off or whatnot so i like when the snow's gone i just go i don't really scout that much when there's snow on the ground honestly yeah unless you're unless you're trying to learn late season stuff yeah which i'm an early season guy so. yeah yeah <laughs> you don't have any tags left by the time late season rolls around no usually not <laughs> Yeah, for me, my my spring scouting usually starts with cattail marshes or swamps, something where there's wet ground, and I can use the ice still to my advantage. That's usually a super narrow window where I get kind of prime scouting conditions where the snow is melted and the ice is still solid enough to walk on. seems like very quickly the ice gets really nasty and starts to to break up. In some instances, last year, the ice was starting to go bad before the snow was even melted. And so you'd be punching through even with, you know, six inches of snow still on the ground. But then once I get enough scouting in those types of areas that are hardest to reach, then I start doing the rest of the scouting on the high ground stuff. Yeah, that spot where I shot my buck this uh, October, I went in early because it was frozen. So I could go right across that marsh super fast and do a bunch of looking around. So, yeah, that's definitely a great tactic, like to go across when the ice is still solid i fell through some ice yesterday when i was trying to get across that river to go check out some stuff <laughs> yeah yeah the rivers are always super sketchy so what is your when you do spring scouting i want to find out kind of what your process is and also what do you prioritize like what are you most looking for are you are you a bad guy and you're looking for beds primarily are you looking for scrapes are you trying to look for big picture stuff what when you what's kind of going through your mind when you plan out a spring scouting day so i usually bring up you know you're going to do your e-scouting on whatever app you like and then i just go right for the betting like i'm just a betting guy so i'm trying to guess strategically in my mind where i think the best betting is going to be uh them the aerials and stuff and i'll just pin them and then i'm just dropping in and i'm going straight to them and then i'm gonna work my way back out from the bedding once i find it 
So when you find the bedding, I guess, first of all, how do you determine, because this is like probably the most common question that I see people ask on like any forum or Facebook page or whatever, when they start to get into bed hunting, how do you identify the bed that you find and determine if it's a big block bed, a small block bed, doe beds, or if it's a bed that gets used maybe only certain times of the year, like how do you, how do you start to put together the pieces of what's actually using those beds? So does, does usually always bed in like a circle. They don't really use the wind as much. They're more eyesight and they're relying on each other in a group to stay safe. So if you walk into a space and there's like 10 beds in a big circle or randomly around, and it's not really in the cover per se. I think, then I'll just, I just write that off as doe bedding. The buck bedding usually has back cover, more individual beds, but not. They don't always have to have the back cover. Some situations, like hill country, they'll just bed like on an open timber. A lot of guys don't think they'll bed in open timber, but they'll bed on open finger ridges and knobs and benches and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. I just go right in. I find the in my mind, what the best bedding is, like the thickest, hardest area for me to get to to kill that deer in that bed. Then I'll lay in the bed, see what he sees. I'll figure out like the wind, how he's using the thermals. And it's just like a, a lot of guys call it the aha moment. Like when you're in the bed and you're just like, how in the world would I ever kill this deer? That's when I think you found the juice, that mature buck bed. Because the mature buck's always going to be in the best bedding there is available. Do you find that in some instances, maybe there's other identifiers like rubs in the, like big rubs in the bed or like adjacent to it, or there's sometimes you find mature buck beds and there's like really no other buck sign in there other than the fact that it's in a good spot. I find both. I think it depends on the buck's personality and the density of the bucks in the area. Like if there's a low buck density, they have less competition. So I feel like they don't put down as much sign or as the buck matures and he tightens his home range way up and he's on public land. I think he learns not to lay down as much sign too, because that's how he stays alive. So I find when I find that there'll be a little core area of sign, it's not really a long line of sign like rubs all the way out to like a food source, you'll just be going back into like a bedding ridge and you'll just pop into this little Titan core area where he lives and he doesn't really move out of that area much once he's matured because he's learned not to go out long line into food or whatever until after dark. But other bucks, they lay down a ton of sign too if they got a lot of competition or they're more like a bully buck personality where they're trying to drive a lot of deer out. They'll lay down a lot of sign. Do you find that a mature buck, especially let's say once he gets older and he, he really does tighten down that core range, will he oftentimes still have multiple beds that he'll use kind of throughout the week? Let's say, you know, early season, maybe he's got three beds. Or do you find that once they kind of tighten down that core, that core range, they're usually going to be pretty well in the same spot every day? I think as they mature and get older, they re they live so long in a bedding spot, they just rely on that over and over. So he'll just have a couple core beds on the wind that he needs to be in there on. And he's not going to be having 30 beds around. 
and this is early season now. I think more towards the rut. If he leaves, he's going to have more sporadic betting, but early on that bed to food pattern, he's just going to have his core couple groups of beds, and he's always usually going to be there. And what about other deer being adjacent to him? Do you find that usually other deer are pretty close by? There are instances in where a mature buck will be kind of all off on his own. I think it depends on his personality. If he's a really docile, he'll have, you know, the secondary bedding bucks, satellite bedding as they call it. So you'll have the younger deer around and some does, and he relies on that to keep him safe. Like you can actually watch the buck, watch them come out, and he watches their body language, and he'll either get more nervous or not if they're nervous. And then you have other bucks that are mature that are more bully bucks. They like to fight all the time. And there's way less deer around them and they're betting like they really chase a lot of the deer out of their area because they just want it to their own. That deer you shot last October, that was probably an example of one of those more docile mannered bucks because if I remember right, there was a whole bunch of deer that kind of filtered out before he did, right? Yeah, there was a bunch of does that came out, then like four uh, immature bucks that came out before him and he was really relying on them, I think, for safety. Because he came out like there wasn't a care in the world because they went through there just fine and dandy right out of the bedding. And so I'm picturing maybe like a similar scenario to that, but let's say it's in a, you know, a cattail marsh that I'm familiar with hunting here in Minnesota. I might have one of those little peninsulas of high ground that you have oaks and whatnot on it. But then surrounding that point, there's a bunch of dogwood and, and other like shrubbier type stuff and you might go in there and find 20 beds. It seems like in that scenario, if you have a buck, who's that type of temperament, maybe you got, you know, five or 10 does or whatever bedded in there, maybe some younger bucks, but the furthest out bed away from that point, like in the very back is likely going to be where the biggest one is. Yeah. In my opinion and through scouting, I would say that's correct. That's where I usually find that mature buck is the furthest away from like the satellite bedding and they like layer themselves in like the doe's bed first then you have the satellite bedding and then the mature buck will be on the back end of that and then i suppose the other scenario i guess do you would you tend to see the other scenario in which the buck's all by himself maybe he's got that more aggressive personality will he still bed in an area like that that has room for other deer to bed or will he go find some spot where there's only room for like one good bedding spot and there wouldn't otherwise be deer there anyway? I usually find them in like isolated cover, a little patch of like CRP or they're in an ag fence line where the fence line just widens out and he's just sitting in there or he's just on like a little tiny bench that just has room for like one deer on it. I think they're bed way more isolated. You'll just find that one bed. I've seen them bed in like the middle of an ag field and like a little drainage strip, and it's just the one buck bedded out there. Those seem like they might be the easier deer to set up on, I would think. I think sometimes they're the hardest deer because it's really hard to get to those isolated beds because just the way they set up, it's really hard to get to them. It's more like they're relying on their eyes more than they are the wind almost and different terrains where the other ones, you just have to beat the does and the satellite bucks before the big one comes out. 
And if you beat them, then he's just going to come waltzing out because he's already confident that there's no danger. Yeah, they just come right on out. Like that 200-inch buck I was chasing, once the does and the satellite bucks would go by, he would come out like not a care in the world. But as soon as one of those does would hook around me because there's so many of them, and they'd catch my wind a little bit and start getting nervous, then automatically his totally his body language mood would change, and he'd like really hang up before he ever even got to me and start like circling out around me out of range. Huh. So but, in, in either one of those scenarios, I suppose the isolated bed is going to be totally situation dependent in terms of where you can set up and how you access. And it's totally based on what that deer can see, hear, and smell as you're approaching. But in the other scenario in which you have a group of deer all bedding in the same spot, how do you go about determining when you're spring scouting what tree do I need to be in? Like, what are you looking for? Are you, are you trying to, to set up far away enough away to where the, you know, the does are like the furthest beds out. You're still like safe from those. Well, that's where it's a double edged sword. If you set up too far away because you're worried about the does, I think he's not going to get to you in daylight. It's going to be after dark. So you just have to push that envelope almost like to get right up on top of the does. Or you might blow some of them out, and if they run through the bedding, he might go with them, he might not. It's, I don't know, it's like a risk you have to take, I think. Gotcha. So, that, that's, really, why I was, that's why I was kind of wondering, you know, is the isolated bed scenario easier, right? Because you can, in theory, get closer to him, and you only have to worry about him. But the reality is you're probably not going to be able to get as close to him because of other factors. Yeah, uh, the, the individual beds, I I don't know. They tend to bed in, like, a harder spot to get to, honestly. Like, yeah. they're in that fence line. If we're talking ag country, he's in the fence line watching the whole access, the field, and he has the wind he needs, and it's really hard to slip in there on him because it's so wide open. Or, like, the buck that's bedded in the middle of that field, that's just a giant wide open field, and there's just a little waterway strip out in the middle of it. And he can see 360 degrees. It's like, so you have to slide up to the fence line and climb up and hope he makes it to you, you know, before dark. Or figure so out think, a, or figure out a way to spot and stalk him if that's even an option. Yeah, if you could crawl up that ditch with him and shoot him or whatnot. Or, it's tough sometimes. Hill country, it might be... I don't know, with the thermals and stuff, that has its whole different set of challenges to the way they bed. I find the bigger bucks, when they're bedded by themselves, they're almost in those thermal hubs alone most of the time. So it's almost impossible to get in there unless you're hunting early in the morning and there's no wind, so you're not getting that swirl. And sometimes they'll be there before daylight in bed, and then your thermals are dropping down into that hub, and they bust you, or... When that thermal switch and the thermals start coming up out of the hub, then he's moving into the hub to go down in there in bed. And then you're already in there and your thermals are pulling up and he's got you. So I find a lot of those mature bucks, the loners are kind of in those thermal hubs in the hill country here. Do you usually target the ones that are easier to kill then? Unless unless he's like a super giant? I usually tend to like to try the challenging ones. Okay. I think. I think you learn the most because if you can figure out the 
pieces to the puzzle on those really hard to hunt bucks, I think it'll help you out in the long run. You'll be a way better buck killer. So then when you're out there in the spring and you find that, that bed, are you picking the tree right then and there and saying, this is going to be the kill tree and maybe, you know, clear out some limbs if, if it's an area where you can do that. Or are you saying, here's the bed, I'll figure it out on the day of in terms of the exact setup. When I find a bed, I'm, I'm laying down in it. I'm looking out to see what he sees, figuring out the winds, the thermals, what they're doing. I usually carry milkweed with me. I'll drop it there with me that day. I'll try to figure out what, you know, what they're doing based on that wind, what the thermals are doing at that time of day. And then I'll start breaking it down. I'll take his exit routes out and then I'll see where he's kind of going. He'll have like two or three usually. And I'll kind of guess on which one will be the easiest for me to hunt or where I think he'll go early season. And then I'll start looking for a tree. Sometimes I'll hang like a hat or something or my coat, like an orange one into the bed. Then I'll walk down the trail until I can't see it anymore. And then I know, okay, well, he can't, I can't see his bed from here. And then I'll start picking out a tree right there because I'll video the tree. I'll walk all the way around it with the video so I can see how it's leaning, what branches I might need to go around. And I'm hunting like 99% public, so I can't really cut anything mm-hmm. in Iowa or wherever unless it's like willows or it's just like ground cover that's already dead. But I find that if you do cut a bunch of stuff, the bucks notice it. So I would I would do it right then if you are going to cut some stuff out. Do it early. Don't wait till like before season because i think they'll pick that off and they'll quit using that bed or even the day of i've heard uh <clears throat> a couple of scent guys like some dog canine type workers talk about vegetation and dis- disturbance and what animals can pick up on and they can smell if ground has been disturbed or if leaf cover has been disturbed so like if you saw a branch they can smell that of course i always figure if they could smell that then they could probably smell you too so it's kind of a like yeah. irrelevant, but I guess it's it's pretty crazy that they can, don't, they can pick up on that kind walking, of stuff. I don't want to be walking anywhere near that bed on the day of to cut anything. You know, I don't want my scent anywhere near where I'm going. Yeah. Like strategically walking in there, using my binos, trying to figure out where I need to go so I don't cross deer trails. I'm keeping my scent down where I think he might walk to uh, as low as possible. But back to the spring scouting when you're picking the tree sometimes i might have like three trees like sometimes it's just like ah it's really hard to decide and then i might just take videos of all three and then think about it later i might go back to my computer and open up to e-scouting because i always run my tracker where i walk drop tons of pins and then i'll kind of see like maybe i'll pick something off of that like more of the big picture and then I'll be easier to pick a tree out of the three I was deciding. But I'm trying to figure out everything when I'm there because I don't really want to come back unless I'm going to put a camera in there. If I'm going to hang a camera, I'll come back like July, August and drop a camera in somewhere near there. Will you ever actually climb the trees at that point in time to see what you can see? Like, will you leave that you know orange coat in the bed and start climbing one of those trees to see like, oh, I can't climb any higher than this? When I first started doing that, when I first started bed hunting, I did that because I find a lot of, I was getting too high 
And I think a lot of guys, that's a lot of their downfall. They're staying way back, but they're just, they're getting too high. Cause when you get 20, 30 feet up a tree, that buck's just laying in the bed, looking right at you. If you make a noise or something, he'll just, he'll turn his head and he'll look right up at you and skylight you. Or if he's bedded there on multiple winds, like kind of like that swamp marsh bedding, they're just in that bed no matter what the wind, and he's just looking out, and he's just catching you going too high. I mean, a lot of the guys that hunt beds talk about that. So like the last couple of years, you know, I talk about killing the big giant bucks on public at like 9, 10 feet high, and that's one of the big reasons why. A lot of guys think it's crazy, but... It's just because I don't want to go any higher than that. So I'm just popping two sticks on a tree. And it's quieter, faster. I'm not fumbling around with sticks when I'm climbing up past that. You know what I'm it's just more stealthy and I don't have to worry about skylighting myself. I'm using all the cover around that height to hide me, tree trunks, tree branches, leaf foliage, whatever, actually actual hills, country or the background or whatever you're in. Yeah. That makes sense. And that kind of brings me back to the the pictures we were showing each other the other day about the that setup I was talking about where there was not a lot of it was like on the edge of a clear cut and we we're asking like oh can you get in that tree can you get in that tree and it's like in that type of scenario it's exactly that problem you get into one of those trees and either you don't climb high enough to get to the branches coming off the trees and you can't move because there's no other cover around those trees or you climb all the way up into the branches and then the trails are like almost directly straight underneath you. And they might've still seen you climb up that tree to get there. That's kind of tough. And, and some of those, those type of habitats. Thermal scouting so much. So my philosophy of scouting, I want to find as many spots as I possibly can on as many different public land pieces as I can. So I've already done like 70 miles of scouting already in a month. And I want to try to get up to like 300 miles this year, I think, because I'm more of a risk taker. I'm going to I'm gonna risk blowing that buck out. I, even if I have really bad cover, I'm still going to try to get away with it. I'm going to push that envelope. And if I blow him out, I'm just going to bounce to the next big buck that I find. So I'm trying to find as much inventory as I can because... I'm either blowing the deer out or I'm killing him. That's my personality. And if I feel like I'm not going to kill a deer there, I'm not going to hunt there. Like, I don't want to set up in that tree. I'm going to keep going. And sometimes I'll blow the deer out. I'll be walking in and get too far in there, and I blow him out. And, well, lesson learned, you can try to do the bump and dump on him. Or you can dive right in and figure out his bedding that moment and then come back another day. Or I just bounce to a totally different buck and start hunting that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The <sighs> The place I hunted last year, I guess I, I keep saying the place, but one of the places, the one that I was chasing the, the biggest buck I was after, I felt like I knew what that deer was doing. I knew about where his core area was pretty well. But then there was other deer where I'd be getting pictures of them, and based on the locations I'd get the pictures, I knew that their core ranges were shifted in certain directions. But I didn't. I wasn't as familiar with like the whole totality of what those deer were doing, and so this year one of my goals is, okay, the the place that I knew quite a bit about, I'm gonna expand that a little bit, and figure out the details of where else I can set up in that buck's core area, where the the trees and everything else that's just set up is safer, um, 
to where I don't have that dilemma about getting skylight. But then on some of those other deer too, spend some time in those supposed core areas to figure those out as well to where if there are, you know, multiple bucks that I'd like to go after, I can do it just like that where I can just bounce from one to the other and be more aggressive and not be so afraid of, you know, blowing that opportunity on the one deer that I have figured out. Yeah. And some of these other bucks that I'm jumping in on every day, like sometimes I don't even have it all figured out. I just go anyways. I mean, just try to learn on the fly. I think when I hunt a new property, if I don't get a lot of good scouting in or like my first initial scout, I think it sometimes will take me about a, a season pre-season scouting and then actually hunting it and seeing how the deer are moving through in real time. And then the next year, I think I have a way better picture of what's going on when I go back in the, uh, when I do my spring scouting. Cause sometimes, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a genius. I get it wrong sometimes, or I didn't think about this one spot or, Oh, Hey, all the deer are using this all of a sudden. So it takes about a season, I think, to figure it out. Like Missouri, when I went down there, I hunted everything blind. I feel like this year, if I went back to the same spots, that I would kill a buck in there early pretty easy because I think I got it kind of figured out already. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way about this area. Is that Even though I've hunted there before, I felt like I learned so much more last year throughout the season and just being somewhat aggressive and, and hunting areas that I knew were good from the year prior to where for me, it's like, at least in some of the bigger woods areas, I feel like it's realistically like a three to five year before I have like multiple spots really figured out. Then it's like, okay, after last year, I have that one area figured out pretty well to where I can go in there and probably do pretty good, but expand that to spots, you know, A, B, C, D, et cetera, down the list. And feel like it'll take a good amount of time, at least in, in those type of habitats where you got five or 10,000 acres. Yeah. And then when you got your own system figured out, like when you're confident in yourself as a hunter and you have your own little system dialed in and you know what you like to hunt and you learn how the deer use the terrain and how they bed and food sources and stuff. Like I find it way easier because of experience when I'm trying to break down like a 10,000 acre piece, because I'll just use my past knowledge and I'll start e-scouting just stuff that I like to hunt that I know they're going to be there on. And then I'll just fill in the gaps later. Like after I see how the deer are actually moving through the terrain or as the season goes, and then I'll go back and scout it again with that, with that Intel, then it'll, you'll start breaking the big pieces down a lot faster. I think. Yeah. And that brings up a good point too. And one of the reasons why I started to hunt that type of stuff is because a lot of the smaller stuff, that had more recognizable features that have more content around them. Like the, you know, let's say like a 200 acre hill country piece or little, you know, smaller cattail marshes where you maybe got one or two Oak islands. It was like those types of places just started getting so much pressure that all the stuff that you picked out East scouting was getting hunted, you know, more or less. And I was like, okay, well, if I go to the, some of the bigger wood stuff, this will take me a longer time to figure out. But, so far, it seems like just based off of mature buck encounters, especially last year, um, and I guess just kind of the amount of information I feel like I've learned in just that first 
two-year period of hunting that type of stuff, I learned so much more that I haven't known from like the previous 10 years of hunting other types of habitats that just like you said, it's like, no, I can kind of keep building on that, find the stuff that looks good, apply it to similar habitat, but in a different area and just keep building that library year over year. Yeah. And, uh, as a hunter, I like to challenge myself too. Like I'll drop in the terrain I've never hunted before in my life just cause I want to be really well, well-rounded. Like if I go out of state DIY, I want to be familiar with how to hunt all the different terrains. So I'll just set out like, Oh, I'm going to hunt more marsh or more swamp. And I'll just dive in and start trying to figure that out as I'm working on all the other stuff and expanding it. And usually when I first start scouting in the spring, I'm hitting all new pieces. I really want to expand that opportunity that I have to get on new deer. So I'll start hitting all the new pieces or I'll hit new cover types, new terrains. And then later on, I'll start bringing it back to home and start hitting stuff. I already do hunt. And I, is that just because you feel like you have a good feel on the stuff you're familiar with already? And so if you don't have time to get back to those, like it's not that big of a deal, you'd rather focus on the new stuff to force yourself to do it and not fall into the trap of only just continuing to scout the stuff that you like. Yeah, that's correct. I think you just get in that comfort zone, man. And a lot of guys fall into that. And they just, it's like the old school tree stand thing where the guy's got five tree stands and he just goes, hunts those five stands, you know, every year. Cause that's what he's comfortable with. Or I want to be, I'm pulling myself out of my comfort zone to, you know, learn more, get in terrains, find new bucks. I just want to have as much inventory as I can when I'm hunting. So I think that just gives me more freedom to bounce around. And I want to have multiple options on multiple wins. Like if I get a a kind of a funky wind, I might only have like one spot. Where if I keep expanding that, I might have five spots this year because I went. and, And, you know, pressure comes and goes. Like maybe a couple of my spots, some guys kind of figured out the year before and filled in. Or, you know, here in Iowa a guy draws a tag and, but he can't hunt for another four years. So I got every year I got all these new sets of non-resident hunters coming in and all of them hunt a little different or they hunt different pieces. So I think I have to be more fluid to move around to get away from that pressure somewhat. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you, this is kind of maybe a weird question, but do you feel like that the out of staters that come to hunt Iowa are oftentimes the bigger headache than trying to hunt around the Iowa residents? Yeah, definitely. They just come flooding in here during the rut and they're all over the place. And it's unpredictable because it's you're used to the meeting that guy in the public land parking lot, like in Missouri. The guy's like, I hunted here 25 years and he knows the place and he knows right where he's going. Where in Iowa, they're only hunting every four to five years. So they're just running the muck through all the public <laughs> lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it's a lot easier easier for me in another state to predict the pressure because the same guy's hunting there all the time. And then he can kind of give you intel because he's always hunted there where that other guy's only hunted Iowa twice in 10 years. And, you know, it's hard to figure out where they're going. But I have added when I'm scouting spring, I'm looking at the trees now because of the mobile hunting craze, saddle hunting, I'm looking for those tree marks because I find, well, you're not going to find a tree stand anymore to know if the pressure's there. You're, I'm looking at the trees to see if there's like the standoff marks from 
climbing sticks and stuff to figure out if a guy's hunting there or there might be a random spot of like trash or he left a bow hanger in the tree or something kind of deal yeah it's so much easier when you have a hang on stand in a scent wick to be yeah, able exactly. to find in the woods <laughs> yeah and like oreos and twinkies and stuff <laughs> scattered all over the ground <laughs> of course now there's there's a lot of guys that ground hunt too and then it's like super hard to figure out where they're they're going all over the place yeah, they tend to make like a little fort though. I've kind of picked those out a couple of times already. Yeah, I noticed those in southern Wisconsin turkey hunting. You get those big, like, guys will make these pretty extravagant, like they'll pull deadfall from all over the place and make these little natural ground blinds. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like bushcraft, the guys out there <laughs> building a village or something. <laughs> Although I guarantee if you went and saw some of the places that that I've ground hunted on, you wouldn't know that I was there other than the fact that there's some matted down grass. Yeah. That's the way I do it. I just pop in a spot where I think I'm going to be hidden. Well, I'm not a big ground hunter, man. I'm too tall. Like <laughs> I get uncomfortable really fast when I put my big six, eight frame into a little spot. I move too much when I'm on the ground. I think you got to, I was talking to, I think Andy had brought this up. He's saying, you know, you could, bring a shovel in and just like dig out like a little you know like a foot or whatever and then you're sitting that much lower i was watching youtube at like two o'clock in the morning one night and i add or something popped up on an old video where the guy would dig out like three foot and you had like a little plastic capsule thing that you would put over the top of them so they didn't fill with water i don't remember what the name of it was <laughs> but it was super intriguing i was like i would never would have thought about that but how long is it going to take me to dig that two to three foot hole for my giant leg? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I think the guy was like doing presets, like he was going out in the preseason and digging these holes and putting these little plastic, almost like trash can lids on top. Yeah, that makes then, that makes sense. I didn't even think about the fact that they would fill with water. Yeah, and he covers them up with like debris so you don't see them. So he can just pop in and open it up and get in it, and nobody knows they're there. Well, like I'd probably open up the the trash can lid, and there'd be like a badger come jumping out. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I can see that. I find that if you have an area, it seems like the areas that I do ground hunt, I ground hunt them because there's more cover on the ground than there is up in the trees, and a lot of times there'll be either saplings or like dogwood type of like bushes. And a lot of times there's just like need a waist high grass or ferns. And then when you're sitting there on a little stool, it's like that alone covers up the entire lower half of your body. And all you have to worry about is your upper body. Yeah. And like the ag country here, I, I'll lay in like a drainage or a Creek bank. I'll just find like a little washout cut and try to get in there and get set up and hide in the canary grass. Cause a lot of the field edges here, the drainage has got like that tall canary grass. It'll mm -hmm. be like, I don't know, two to three foot tall, sometimes more, but, uh, muzzleloader hunting. I, I mostly like to hunt on the ground. I'll get in a bean field or getting those drainages way out. Like where those isolated bucks are bedding. Yeah. I'll, tuck down there i usually take like a little turkey chair if i'm gun hunting on the ground if i'm bow hunting i'll just use like my knee pads i use for saddle hunting or whatnot yeah yeah that makes sense so i guess circling back to the spring scouting stuff then 
we we've gotten we've talked about picking the tree and how important that is to do all that prep work basically the day of learn as much as you can inside and out about the spot and then finding as many of those types of spots as possible and thinking about the details about how that buck might use it what winds he's going to use it what he can see and also if there's going to be other deer bedding there where they're going to be bedding and trying to just figure that all out and trying to spread the habitat types out but a lot of it is in context of bedding in early season to where you're be, you're going to be close enough that apart from just like the browsing and amongst the bed, like you're not even really worried about the food too much other than just knowing what, like where, what major bedding area they're going to be in if it's adjacent to some hot food source. But do you also use spring scouting as a really good opportunity to look at rut sign too? Cause I feel like spring scouting rut sign is, uh, you know, apart from actually being out there in November and putting on a lot of miles, it's like the next best time of year to find that rut sign. Yeah. I'm not a big rut hunter, honestly. <laughs> I'm not a fan of hunting in a rut because the bedding's really unpredictable. The mature bucks kind of leave after a while and they could be miles away. It's hard for me to really pattern a buck that time of year. So I'm hunting, I switched to hunting more doe bedding and like, terrain pinches and stuff like that where i think they'll come through security cover downwind sides of like doe bedding or you just learn over time they go through like a buck in the hill country he'll travel through like the drainages down in the thermal hubs they'll usually be like a community scrape down there and some big rubs and they're only running through there during rut so the rut sign to me is a little more uh sporadic like you'll just find a bunch of rubs somewhere that don't make sense to me for bedding and that will key off the rut sign but if i'm gonna rut hunt i really like to get on that doe bedding that's close to like a community scrape or i'll get between two buck bedding areas because they'll usually sometimes they'll still use it and they'll come out to like that scrape that's in between them which is good for like the third or fourth week of October. But some of the mature bucks, they won't leave until like maybe after the first week in November. I found chasing some giant bucks with my buddy this past season. The big mature bucks, they didn't move out of the hardcore bedding until like that November 7th or 8th time frame. So you could still get on them that first part of rut. It just took the same, same patterns that you would have been using late October. Yeah, still hunting them the same way because they're still in that core bedding. It seems like the mature bucks, they breed all the does in their home range, but they'll stay in that, what they know, they're familiar with that bed. Like, they're still leery. Like, the older buck is really on a different level, you know? All these guys that are hunting pinches and funnels and stuff, they're seeing a a two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half, maybe a a four-and-a-half-year-old buck. But if you're hunting that six-and-a-half, seven-and-a-half, like 180-plus buck, like, he's really staying back in that security cover, staying in his bedding range. And then when it's he got all his breeding done, then I call it, like, long lining. That, like, second to third week of November, I find the third week of November, like, that Thanksgiving week is when I'm really good at killing those big mature bucks. They see him, they're just long line out looking for those last mature uh, does or even the younger does coming in. To heat, they run around way more. They go out in the open more. 
I've shot some of my biggest bucks that third week of November doing that. But I was just set up on like betting. It's like they hop from the prime betting to the prime betting to the prime betting, but they're doing it during daylight. So they're exposing themselves, but they're coming like miles away, just hopping that betting. And that's usually the kind of bucks you're going to see them just kind of zombie walking from point A to point B. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> they're just like, they're like me hunting a buck bed, man. They're like, I'm risking this no matter what. Yeah. Or I'm driving down the road, and here comes a 200-incher walking across the road, and he beds down right in a ditch under a cedar tree. And I look, and oh, there's a doe right there. And I can stop my truck, open the door, and walk out around my truck and literally stand there and just take pictures of him, and he doesn't move. Like, he's just looking at me. And then he won't leave until I blow that doe out. Like, when that boat, that doe gets nervous and runs off, then the buck will go. But he won't leave until that doe leaves. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's always kind of like that weird time of year in Wisconsin and Minnesota because absent of hunting pressure, I would expect that that's the kind of stuff you would see. Wisconsin, the third week in November, is the firearm season. Minnesota, the firearm season starts the first week in November and runs for the next two weeks, so they've been like super pounded by that time of year. But I left out some trail cameras in North Dakota that I went and picked up and that Thanksgiving week, like, the, it was like it was really good, like the first week in November, and then again, like that twentieth or twenty-sixth time period, getting a lot of big bucks during daylight, just cruising on some of those cameras and in, in the uh, terrain type pinches, whereas you didn't have pictures of some of those deer earlier on in the year. And it was still, I think, technically gun season then, but probably there's so many fewer hunters out there gun hunting because you know I'm non-residents and most of the guys are hunting box blinds or or road hunting that. I don't think in some of those bigger public areas they get pressured as much that time of year. Yeah, that's one thing I'm thankful for about Iowa. It's no no gun hunting at all during the rut here. Like I'm just <laughs> I just don't understand at all, honestly, as a hunter standpoint, like it just makes no sense. Like Missouri, the rifle season opens up in rut. Like I just don't get it, man. Like I just think it wipes out your age class, wipes out your trophy bucks for the most part. Like, so I'm thankful Iowa, like I don't have to worry about that gun season coming in during the rut here. Yeah. I mean, the big pushback in like my state, for example, is, you know, we're still the minority and the vast majority of gun uh, hunters are gun hunters. And a lot of them traditionally have, you know, they've gone up to either their land on the state forest where they have like their, you know, elevated box blind or they're going up to their 40 acres for that only one time a year. And so if they're going up in like December, they might go up in that box blind and not see anything. Whereas if they go up there and you know the land hasn't been pressured and they go up there during the rut and they're sitting there with their shotgun the first year it comes out, they can shoot it and there's going to be usually a good amount of movement. And so it's kind of that double-edged sword. It's like they're a lot of those people are just going up for that one week and they're willing to shoot whatever. Yeah, I mean, nothing in life is perfect, man. So, I mean, you just got to live with what it is. Yeah. But for me, I just mostly bow hunt. So, for me, you know, I don't want that gun hunting during the rut. But, hey, everybody has the right to go out and hunt and do whatever. And that makes sense to me. It's just not my cup of tea. But mm -hmm. I'm more like I'm going to try to kill early in those states. Like Missouri, when it opens, like, whatever, the second week of December, I come to Wisconsin this year and hunt 
when it opens up. When does it open in Wisconsin? What the second, it's, third week? It's usually between like the sixteenth and the twentieth of September. Yeah, I want to try to kill like early before Iowa opens, or if I go to Nebraska, Nebraska opens September first. I want to go out there and. I think with the way I hunt my scouting, I want to be on the deer super early and kill them before all that pressure gets in there. Then I'm gone before I ever have to worry about trying to hunt the rut or whatever after gun season comes through. Because I hunt in Missouri uh, after the rifle seasons and the rut and stuff, and it was pretty tough. Like Everything's nocturnal no deer movement i mean it was like that before the red even kicked in for some reason but because so much pressure but i find that missouri it's uh some of the public land you can't rifle hunt high power you can only muzzleloader so those are the places i kind of bounce to or there's some bow only stuff so that's where i would go if i'm going to hunt during the rut or after the rifle season there but i think i would just go early and plan on uh trying to kill something i'm probably not going to try to kill a giant early i'm just going to jump in and kill a good buck and worry about giant hunting in iowa because i think it takes a lot of time and effort to get on those mega giants you know to find them yeah interesting point about the gun honey too i think this is probably a generality but i think it's true more often than it's not is that if i do find like especially in minnesota probably more so than wisconsin if i find like the scent wicks or like the stands I think a lot of times those are the shotgun hunters because they're they're using those you know rut type tactics and they're only going out there once a year so they're just going to have their one spot out in like a big you know mile mile out into the swamp type of an island you know throw up a a stand in a scent wick um whereas it seems like at least recently more of the bow hunters have adopted the mobile hunting mentality and they're less likely to leave that type of stuff in the woods yeah, so most of the stands I find are just old. You know, the straps are kind of faded. They have no seat cushion or a squirrel ate it out 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, gun stand or it just doesn't look used or, you know, sometimes they'll be like, here I'll find like the shotgun shells, like slug shells laying around on the ground underneath them because they don't tend to pick them up for some reason. Or just like you said, I'll find like a, just trash you know, they're sitting there all day. They're eating a honey bun or something. I might find some around. And some of the spots just don't make sense for, like, the way the deer are bedded and moving. I'm like, why would the guy be here? Well, he's there because he can shoot, like, 100, 200 yards, you know. He's not right on top of the deer yeah, or whatnot. Like, he's more just hunting the area because a lot of their setups don't really make sense to me. And sometimes around here, if you get in the swamps, you can find trees that, just because of the shooting lanes, you know that they're, they have to be gun hunting spots. If you can't, if you're in like a tamarack and there's branches coming off like all the way around the circumference of that tree, blocking all your shooting lanes out to 20 yards, but then from like 30 to a hundred, you have shooting, then it's like, okay, that's, you know, definitely a gun stand. Yeah. I look at that too. Some of the ones I found yesterday, I was like, there's no way I'm shooting an arrow through any of this stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, just, I think it just experience, man. That's why I just love to get out and scout as much as I can. I feel like any time you can get in the woods is not wasted. Like, even if you're out there for an hour or two hours a day when you got time or if you got kids or something, you can bounce out for a couple hours. Heck, I'm the, 
I'd probably pack a kid on my back, man, if I had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I'd carry all of them on my back and just go use them for exercise, you know? <laughs> do you find, uh, I guess, do you intentionally look for sheds when you're out in the woods spring scouting or only if you find them? I honestly don't care, man. Like, literally just don't care about sheds. They're cool, but I didn't kill it. So it doesn't really excite me much. I mean, sometimes if you find a Mondo, man, it could get you on a buck you don't know about. Like, before the Iowa show, I found that one that I brought to the show and showed yep. you and Jared. And I would have never known that buck was even there if I wouldn't have found this shed. Like, just the way it was set up for the bedding, like, you would have walked right by that probably. Because I think it was more of a... I don't know, early season. I think he's in that area year-round because uh, I followed the rub line up there. So for him to have the rubs coming out, and I mean the rubs were like up to my chest, and I'm super tall. So instantly I was like, oh, this is a big buck. So I followed it back up there. But just to know like exactly what little finger ridge he was on, I wouldn't have known that bed was there probably if I wouldn't have found that shed sitting in there because the bed was kind of covered up. And that's where, like you were saying, uh, those big chunks earlier in the convo, we were talking the big chunks, it's harder to break down, but you feel like you get away with more because you find little features that other people don't find. Cause like the small pieces, they got like two really good spots and everybody goes there. So this spot, when you were looking on the aerials, it looked like one solid ridge on this, uh, east side of it so west wind bedding it just looked like one solid but when i actually got in there it was like a series of like 10 little finger ridges and they all had drainages and you couldn't even see that on like the aerial maps and hmm. stuff so that pushed the buck bedding into those little finger ridges there was like three of them that i found some like really good bedding on which i probably would have never even went up there and looked because i didn't see those finger ridges at all on like the aerial stuff but working with like some of that map mapping apps that you can get that shaded relief in there and sometimes it'll bring it out a little bit yeah then you can see that stuff like me and jared were uh messing with that a lot trying to teach carl how to find <laughs> buck beds on terrain elevations on wind tunnels and stuff and we were showing like how you can change that shaded relief and carl's eyes lit up you know like <laughs> holy crap like like it's like a you know a kid's getting a new toy when he found out you could do that. And we're like, yeah, he's going to be sitting right here. And he's like, yep, that's where he was. Like, it totally made sense to Carl instantly, you know, when he could see that terrain on the map and had that in-person experience with that spot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I like slope angle shading for some of that too, especially in the really steep country. Then you can a lot of times pick out where there's vertical rock and bluffs, like like northeast Iowa type habitat or southeast minnesota where maybe you got that ring of bluff around a, a main ridge but then you have gaps and little finger ridges cutting off maybe you got the certain elevation line where there's just like almost like rock outcroppings like little like spurs almost in the, in the side of the ridge where a buck can just like sit up on you know over the top of one of those yeah like you can find the military crest weight quicker the wind tunnels the deer trail like that elevation line that wind tunnel is going to be on super fast pick out the little finger ridge bedding where i think he'll be up above because i figure some of the more mature bucks they like to be on a little bit steeper 
bedding so they can look out further mm-hmm. than kind of like the rolling hill stuff. If there is some rolling hills adjacent, they're more on the steeper elevation stuff, I think, because they get that visual advantage. And that's how I found those high walls. Even in like ag country, I found those high walls by using that shaded relief. I was like, oh, that's super steep right there. It's like a hundred foot drop off. So I know it was going to funnel the deer around that, you know, before I ever even got there. Yeah. And that's a, I feel like it's good to use those tools before, but then also after, like you said, to kind of tie together the big picture and then the minute detail, then bring it back to the big picture and try to piece it all together. Yeah, I'll try to overlay that on top of my pins and stuff that I marked when I was actually in there. And then see, like, if there's a pattern or something, I can kind of figure out. Really analytical. Probably not as much as you are, but more than people would think I am. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those maps you send me, I'm like, bro, this is, like, way too complicated for my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like like when you have bad handwriting, and you can read what it says, but you give it to somebody else, and they're like, I can't read this. Yeah, it's like giving Carl a Topo map, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. But, yeah, there's all kinds of tools and tricks and stuff you can learn and figure out. And I'll even – I'll talk to a lot of guys that are hunting terrains I'm not familiar with and just get those little tidbits out there. Like, I'll talk to Jared a lot about, like, that steeper West Virginia, like, mountain terrain and try to relate that back to, like, iowa hill country and see what he's figuring out or what he's keying on i mean there's so many resources out there nowadays that you can reach out to so many guys and it's not like i'm latching on the one guy's system because a lot of guys just get on one guy they follow and it's like they're their bread and butter where i'm more like i'm taking bits and pieces off of everybody i can even guys that aren't as experienced you are, sometimes they figure out one little thing that you overlooked or didn't know about. So I try to talk to everybody and then try to pull out little pieces of their puzzle and put it into mine, you know? Yeah. I feel like I'm primarily the same way. Little bits and pieces. If a guy's consistently killing big deer, I'll definitely listen to what he says, but maybe some of it applies, some of it doesn't, just yeah. based on the specifics. Yeah, state, pressure terrain i mean it can all change like things they do so you can take some of the stuff some of the stuff you can't use it just depends on what you're doing mm-hmm. or maybe it just goes into the memory bank and you think you're never going to use it and all of a sudden you find that one scenario where you <laughs> dig back and think oh yeah maybe i'll try this yeah sometimes i've done that i roll into a terrain and i'm like man i remember one time on youtube this whatever guy did this and i'm gonna try it out and i'm like hey man that kind of worked i almost got it done and I just wasn't familiar with it enough to make it happen, you know? Yep. <clears throat> and then I think sometimes, too, it's like uh, the spring scouting. All the guys are going deep, man. They're going mile, two miles back. I'm hitting the stuff right by the roads, too, because like in Missouri, I found there was so much pressure in the core. It was pushing all the deer out to the edges. So I was like looking at my truck, you know, I'm hanging in the tree. <laughs> I'm 200 yards away, and that buck came through five minutes after daylight. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, man, if I was shifted more towards my pickup truck, you know, I would have shot him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, who, who would think that, you know what I mean? But he was coming off to private land, and he had a rub line 
<clears throat> coming down the road in a little scrape line right on the gravel road man like you could drive down the gravel road and just look over and you could see these scrapes and stuff and automatically my mind's like oh he's coming through in the middle of the night making that you know he's not gonna come out here in daylight well it's like he was watching that parking lot i guess and knowing everybody's mile deep man he came right out through there in daylight and got to me a couple hundred yards away like five minutes after shooting light so if i would adjust it over more and then the next day you know i had like 10 guys roll in that were gonna hunt the rut and they put like 20 tree sands all over the place and put a couple in that spot that i found so i was like well i'm off of that box so i just moved on to a different one i thought i could get on yeah there's a there's a doe group near a spot that we park and it's not super obvious because you got to cross like a little bit of a swamp to get to it back to the high ground. But we set up an opening day last year when I was filming Sam and we had a doe and a fawn come through, two black bears come through. We hear, hear, uh, somebody hit a deer with a car, like 200 yards for a ride. You can just hear him smash it. Um, and then, you know, the, the horns from the, from the car just going off. You can hear guys coughing in the parking lot, slamming the doors. And then come October, late October, then Buck started to use it. Because I saw a lot of rut sign in that type of spot last year. A lot of you know scrapes and some huge rubs. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is this might be a really good spot. So we put out a couple cameras to monitor. Well, it turns out it was mostly just the doe group living their early season. And then the Bucks started using it during that rut time frame. Yeah, I find that like if you get in a spot where there's a bedding ridge but no food and there's food just across the road on the private, <clears throat> I mean they're gonna go to food. So I'm like I'm literally almost hunting like on the gravel road, trying to catch them coming out to go to the food, or I'll swing in there in the morning on that bedding ridge and catch them coming back in from the private food source across the road in the bed. <clears throat> or like if there's a if there's any kind of big ridge over the access. I'll get up there because there's usually a buck up there watching the access nine times out of 10 or I'll get those 90 degree bends in the road. You know, you get that hard corner in the road where the public butts up and makes that little edge. Yeah. I find that a lot of deer will bed in that little 90 degree bend. Like on the tour, like if you're taking a right turn, they'll be to the right side of you. Yeah. They'll be right in that cover right there. Cause that cover always is really thick by the road. Yep. And it, get in, it kind of fades off. They'll be right on that transition line where that thick and that thin is. And then they use that wind. They let that wind blow off the public land, and they'll be watching that road on that 90-degree bend, or it'll be the opposite where the wind's coming out of that 90-degree bend and blowing across them, and they're watching out into the public. Yeah, I got a spot I'll shoot you. I, <laughs> I think is I really wanted to check it out last year. I just never had the time. But it lays up just like that. It looks like it should be pretty dynamite. Yeah, I find like any little drainage too. I mean, there could be, I'm talking like tiny little spots, like 20 yard by 20 yard little spot, just a grown up nasty junk, whatever. They'll get, they'll bed in that like right on the road or whatever. There's usually not a tree to get in there to hunt it though. You got to. I don't know. Kind of got to be crazy and get in there on the ground or something. Yeah. And the nice More thing about like, those types of spots is that they're really easy to scout. It's <laughs> like you can just, you can almost 
say today is going to be a road scouting day and hit up five or six different spots throughout the course of the day. Yeah, some of the spots I hunted in like Missouri or even Iowa, they got to service B roads or just dirt roads. Yep. So like after it rains a little bit, you don't want to drive down them, but you know it's holding that holding the tracks in there so i'll drive down them and just check for all the deer tracks and be like oh there was a mega trail right here and then i'll just start backtracking it because i do a lot of day scouting when i in season a lot of guys get scared too i think because they're worried about blowing deer out where i just go man i'll scout like five six miles a day in season and then set up in the afternoon so i'm always like trying to figure out the here and now too even though i'm doing tons of spring i'm still doing that in season scouting to pair with it or i'll go back and just check like i found that rub line coming off of that bedding that i was talking about where that shed was at mm -hmm. that i found that i showed you like if i go through there and that rub line's open then i know i know he's gonna be up there then I'm going to concentrate on hunting him. But if that rub line's not open, I'm not going to waste my time because he's probably betting somewhere else. Yeah, that makes sense. And that would probably help yeah. you too in like the scenario I had that close to the road spot. You go in there, there's no rubs yet that you had seen in your spring scouting. Okay, maybe this is a, a rut spot because there's nowhere yeah. near to the amount of sign opened up that I would have expected if there is bucks using it right now. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe a new buck moved in you didn't know about. I mean, I find a lot of deer that I never even knew were there. I never got them on trail camera, nothing, and they just show up. Like, they shift in or they get pressure somewhere and it pushes them in. Because maybe uh, Billy bought that property next to it this year, and you didn't know that Billy moved in there, and he put too much pressure on the private land, and he's pushing all his bucks onto the public now. You know, because he just switched ownership. Like, you never really know. I mean, all kinds of little scenarios like that happen. Because I think Iowa, man, the private gets way more pressure than the public sometimes. And it pushes bucks onto the public land, which most people wouldn't think happens. But I think it does. Yeah, that, I could see that being the case. And I think that's the case, too, on the really, really big public chunks. Just because... It's harder to disperse the people if you don't have, like, if vehicles or bikes or whatever aren't allowed. I think you end up getting a lot of guys that are, you know, closer to the trail systems. And you end up getting these big overlooked pockets that might be 300 acres. You know, amongst the scale of 10,000, that's not very much. But if you compare that to a state like Michigan where it's all just 40s and 80s and everybody hunts their little 40s and 80s, it's like the pressure is very well distributed in that kind of an area. Whereas in some of those bigger properties, there's a lot of little probably hidden gems. Yeah. Even like Missouri, like that, I was saying those, uh, places you can't rifle hunt in. I noticed that after rifle season, it pushed a lot of deer into those, like all the private getting rifle hunted. Yep. Pushed a lot of those deer into that public land. Cause there was no rifle pressure in there. Well, not supposed to be anyways. That's kind of what I felt about like the place I had the camera running in North Dakota. I never got a single person on that camera. A lot of deer and a lot of elk. But every private field that you see has like a box blind in it. Yeah. So I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah, I see that a lot here in Iowa. Like you'll see the big box, box blinds, tower blinds and stuff like that everywhere. Homemade ones, bought ones, whatever. Just sitting out in the middle of ag fields. And uh, bedding here is, you know, 
a lot of that ag betting's pretty small. Like once you blow that out, they're pretty much going somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> I feel like the ag betting stuff too is probably some of the harder stuff to scout early season compared to like hill country compared to cattail marsh like i think back to a big buck i jumped hunting southern minnesota in late september where he was just bedded on the edge of an alfalfa field in crp i go back there in the spring that bed not, might not be there anymore he might have only been been there for you know august september when the alfalfa was good then he moves off somewhere else and the grass you know dies off and whatever and probably hard to tell that that's going to be there come the next year yeah, it's definitely tough, and it's way easier to blow the deer out if you go and they're scouting. Like, they see you from a long ways off, or you're leaving your scent in there, or they bump up to that food source early. Early, they're, like, bedded way closer to the food because they haven't had any pressure at all. Mm-hmm. And the bedding, they have to bed where the bedding is, so it's usually right on top of that food. So you, a lot of times you have to get really close, so I tend to blow the farm country deer out a little bit more than i do the hill country because i can use the terrain more in hill country than i can the farm country unless there's like a creek or drainage or standing corn i use standing corn a ton to move through i'll walk through the middle of it every time if i can so sometimes i might lay off some of the spots in farm country till a little bit later just because I want to use that corn to access. And I think that buck's going to stay in there because he doesn't really have anywhere else to go per se. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's just knowing like the properties and stuff as good as you can. Like, so that's where this, you know, getting familiar with everywhere you're going to hunt the best you can. And sometimes they're bedded in like weird spots. Like you got a Creek running through the ag field or whatever and there's just a lip, like you'll just drop off and there'll be a little lip and that buck will actually be bedded down in the creek on that little lip and you'll never even know he's there. Like you'll just walk right by him and kick him out. Like I've had that happen to me a couple of times and that's how I started learning about that little bit of bedding in open country. It's just like a, it's almost like a hill country bench, but it's down in the creek. Hmm. So, and then they're in. so if you, if you had the, I guess, the choice between picking, let's say four areas and spending enough time in the spring where you know, those areas like the back of your hand and you're finding those little like weird oddball spots like that. Would you prefer to do that or put your boots on eight to 10 different places and just get kind of a rough idea of what's going on? It depends on where the buck is at that I want to kill, honestly. <laughs> but, but you're not going to know that until the fall. When you're, yeah, you know? that's true. A lot, I'm running soaker cameras, man. Most of all the spots I got soaker cameras on. So I got last year's intel on any spot that I scouted. Gotcha. And is that, so I'm using, is that I'm stuff using that you're that. figuring out? Is that stuff that you're figuring out? As you, like, I'm going to go pick up my camera and scout it, like, the same day. And if you go pull that card... And you're like, oh, wow, I got all these big bucks on here. I'm going to spend more time in this spot. And then maybe go pick up a different cam and a different piece, and that one doesn't have much intel on it. You're like, ah, I'll just maybe walk through this one briefly. But Yeah, exactly. Or sometimes I don't even check the camera until I hunt the spot. Like the camera will be in the spot that I'm going to hunt, and I'll literally just hunt it. And when I get down, if I didn't kill anything, I'll check the card or whatever. Like, Or I'll have a mock scrape set up. I've really... 
been playing around with those mock scrapes, those vine scrapes that like Jeff Sturgis talks about. Mm-hmm. I've been using those like right in where I'm going to hunt for drawing power or if I'm in between two bedding areas, I might run it for inventory. Yeah. But I'm going to set up to shoot that scrape. So I've played around with that a lot and I found that's helped me uh, get more big bucks in the area on camera on the soaker cams. I mean, you got to, it's like a risk, right? Because a guy walking through public can find that and be like, oh, well, there's a mock scrape right here and start yeah. hunting your spot. But Yeah, that's definitely the tough part. I, I found that some of the natural scrapes that I find, like some of them, they're really obvious, right? You got the thumb size branches all chewed up or whatever. Yeah. There's a spot I hunted last year where I knew historically there was a good scrape with a good looking branch, but it's kind of more just like one of those branches just kind of overhanging from a dead limb and oh, yeah. just like a little, you know, like 30 little twig fingers. They love those, man. And and so it's like, you don't necessarily, like most guys walking past that aren't going to necessarily know that there's a good scrape there unless they see the pot out stuff on the ground. And you go in there and like the first week in November and the leaves have started to fill up that scrape and they're not pawing out the scrape every day. Like I sat a spot like that where it just had one of those little licking branches with all the twigs and the scrape was kind of half covered with leaves and still had like four different bucks come through that one evening. I've got uh, <clears throat> trail cam photos of bucks coming through and working scrapes even though there was snow on the ground. Like you couldn't see the scrape at all, just the licking branches mm-hmm. and they were still hitting those licking branches and just going. So it's still got the drawing power, even though you can't see the actual yeah. pulled out part. And then, uh, like you were talking about, I learned years ago, I had a tree fall over like a red Oak. So it, after it fell over, it held the leaves on there, but it was just dangling down. Like you're talking about and it had like 30, 40 little twigs. And I just happened to have a trail camera sitting there. And man, it was like one of my best scrapes that year for on the camera. I got so many bucks that worked that. And ever since then, I've learned to look for that. So I'll look at like the little twiggins. Like I just notice them. You'll see it's like almost fresh. You know, if you go in and you cut a tree or break a branch, you'll see that it's really that bright color you can see. So I'll just check the tips for that little bright color, like the newer breakage. Yeah. And you'll know it's that season. Sometimes I find them broken off or whatever, but they're more like a historical rub. They get that black like color to them. Then you know they're not using that anymore or whatever. So I look for that fresh breaks on those. My eyes just kind of pick them out now. So I look for those a lot. I found one actually yesterday. That one coming off that oxbow was one of those like 30 little twiggers just hanging down. And he was just hitting them. And you could see like it was really bright. So he's been hitting it all season. Yeah. Some of the more obvious ones, it seems like you have a branch that started off horizontal with all the little twigs and it's like snapped right above where it starts to branch. And you got like that, like little widow's claw, like, or that witch's claw, like hanging. Yeah, for sure. I find that in Iowa too, if you want to find scrapes, red oaks, man, I don't know what it is about the red oaks, but if there's a decent sized red oak, there's usually going to be a scrape on it. If it's on like a transition edge or something like that, there's so I'll even look for those when I'm scouting. I'm just like, oh, there's a red oak because a lot of the red oaks even still got their leaves on it right now. You know, they're dead, but they yeah. hold them forever. So I'll just look, oh, there's a red oak over there, and I'll veer way off. Like, I'll go way out of my way. I might walk two, three hundred more yards just to go check that red oak and like, oh, there's a scrape right here. 
and then try to figure out like if he's hitting it at night or where he's coming from. So that can key you off to some betting you might not normally find like on EMAP or it might pop you into a little isolated betting spot too sometimes like a draw or something yep. that's just kind of grown up because there are usually a couple of rubs or something that are close by that scrape that I found if he's really working that area. If it's just a scrape out in the middle of nowhere, he's probably just hitting it at night. But if you start finding other sign in conjunction with it, then it's usually like he's around in that area more often. It's yeah. just not like one and done. It seems like sometimes I'll be in a spot spring scouting and I'll find an area. I'm like, man, this just seems like a great spot, right? You got betting here, betting there. You're like in between them. And you got maybe super thick cover, but you got that little opening in the woods. It's like, man, there should be a scrape here. And you look over to your right, and it's like, okay, there's, there it is. Um, and sometimes even in the summer, you, you mentioned earlier, just like being having a keen eye and knowing what those licking branches look like. like. You can't see the pot up stuff in the summer, just like you can't see when the snow is covering it. But I found that that's been super valuable of a, of a skill set to be able to learn what the licking branches look like in an area. Yeah, woodsmanship is taking a long way these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it'll help you more than technology will, in my honest opinion. The better woodsmanship you got, the better off you'll be. Yeah. Well, I think 10 years ago, the like woodsmanship was your only option, right? Like if you wanted yeah. to be good, unless unless you like were the guy who knew how to use the existing tools at the time to the best of their to the best of the abilities, then you had an edge on everybody else. But now the technology's gotten to the point where everybody has kind of that baseline. And like you said, now once again, it's like the guys with the woodsmanship are, that's what like sets them apart. Guys spending more time in the woods um, and picking up on some of those little things. Yeah, like that buck that I killed last year. I found him, or I, I figured there was a big buck back there because I just found his tracks, you know. When I said I went in shed hunting with my buddy and my buddy wanted to go in there. And I just found that Mondo set of tracks and I just stored that in my brain. <laughs> Even though I didn't go back in there and pick out a tree or anything, I was just like, oh, there's going to be a big one back there, you know? Yep. And then I just worked, used the technology and the woodsmanship to work my way back. I checked a couple bedding areas and there was no sign. Like I said, it wasn't opened up yet. So I knew I had to keep pushing back. And then boom, you know, I shot that giant buck just doing that just by that little bit of woodsmanship like just paying attention observing like i don't know i'm not staring at my phone the whole time on onyx or spartan forge or whatever you know i'm just looking at it here and there but i'm still paying attention to like everything around me i'm just i'm stuck if i do stop that's when i'm looking at my phone like some of my buddies just stare at their phone the whole time when they're walking through the woods and they're following their track and looking at stuff where if I do that, I stop, I won't keep walking and I'll mark what I yeah. need and put it in my pocket and I just keep going and I'm looking at the ground. I'm looking in the air. Like I'm really trying to be really observant of what's going on around me when I'm walking through. Yeah. I'm kind of the same now where I'll just, if I, a lot of times I'll leave it, I'll just keep the phone in my hand but I'm not looking at it. I'm just holding it because it's easier to hold it than put it back in a pocket. But then I'll just, you know, stop, pick it up, look at it, start walking again, looking around. I I hold the phone in my hand sometimes, but 
my big giant feet. I'm kind of clumsy. I fall off, <laughs> and I don't want to break my phone. <laughs> so I tend to put it in my pocket. Like if I, I fell yesterday. I was doing a Marco Polo with Austin from Genesis 3D, and I was trying to climb a creek bank that was really deep with one hand because I was trying to show him some terrain stuff. And, man, I got to the top, and I just biffed it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should have put my phone in my pocket. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about bringing back the binocular harness this year and using that as just, like, something I'm always wearing. So yeah. I can just have something to just quick, easy, drop the phone in and out of, um, as opposed to using the Rick Young buying a harness and trying to feed that thing, feed that phone back in my pocket underneath my saddle, which is always kind of weird. Yeah, that's one thing that I think I'm gonna go to. Like, I've I'm down to like a couple different brands of the bino harnesses, but I want to use them just just basically to hold my phone and my binos and stuff. But I use binos a good bit when I'm scouting, more in season scouting because I can see ahead of me. Yep. But sometimes I'll use them when I don't really want to walk way over there if I don't think it's quite worth it, and I'll just glass over there. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I need to go check that out, or nah, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So it could save you some some energy, you know, if you're using that. But yeah, I was thinking about that yesterday when I fell. I was like, if I had that, I could just tuck the phone in because I get tired of pulling it in and out of my pockets or, you know, that brush. I'm in those bedding areas that have that high skim uh, stem count. Yep. It's like rubbing on your phone. And I'm going to use my phone to film with, so I really don't want to scratch the lens <laughs> up on my new iPhone. So I need to move it up some, so I'll probably do that too, I think. Yeah, I just ordered a marsupial gear, and it should get here like probably sometime next week. But the other one that I was looking at that looked pretty interesting was the Kuyu Pro one. There's, oh, like, okay. there's like an older version of the Kuyu one, but it looked like they had an updated version that had some more similarities to the marsupial. So those were, out of all the ones I looked at, those seemed like they were kind of, I don't know if you could say like top of the class, but at least design-wise seemed to make the most sense for how I wanted to use them. Yeah, the, I looked at those two, too, and I've been debating those two. There was a third one I seen. It was like T&K hunting one. Okay. Uh, they custom make those here in America, too. And I like those a lot. The guy's always coming out with, uh, like, different little pouches and stuff, too. He actually just came out with, like, a cell phone pouch for his bino harness, like, a oh. week or two ago. So that kind of caught my attention. But I looked at that marsupial gear one. Uh, Jared brought his to the Iowa Deer Classic, and he let me mess around with it. And I liked it really how compact it was. Like, I don't want that, you know, I don't want a big bulky one hanging off of me when I'm trying to saddle hunt because I kind of right. want to keep, I kind of want to keep it on me when I'm saddle hunting. I mean, a lot of guys take theirs off, but I think I'd rather just have it on me so I can just range with the rangefinder or glass really fast if I need to, and I don't have to reach up to that tree. Because how we were talking about skylighting ourselves, you know, when we hunt, I will do that sometimes, but I'm not hiding behind the tree in the saddle. Like, I'm already set up on the side of the tree where I can just shoot straight to where I think he's going to come through. Yep. And I might just use one tree, like the buck I shot last year again. I just had one tree out on that point past me. And after I shot that buck the next day when I went in to do some setup videoing stuff, uh, I got I put my camera arm on the tree and I actually videoed me what I looked like in the tree. I haven't put any of that footage out yet, but when I'm lean I'm a leaner, so I'm leaning off. I know you like to sit, but when I'm leaning out, 
I just look like one of the big branches behind me. So even though I was only nine foot and that buck was coming through when he looked up at me, if he ever did, like I just blended in with that tree, like that was 20 yards behind me and that was it. That's the only cover I had was like that one little, like that one branch and I just kind of fit into it. Yeah. And I think that's where like move, knowing when to move and when not to move is so key. And that's yeah. where that's where like having the trees that do have way better cover. I think that the advantage there is not necessarily Yeah, you can get away with more movement. And especially when you're filming that can be really handy. Yeah, like I needed to reach the camera and tilt tilt it down a touch so I got the cuz I kind of cut his legs off. So I wanted to tilt it, but I knew better cuz he's walking right at me. Yeah. And that low, I was like, "Oh, I can't move at all." And it's like that last golden hour, I'm holding my bow for the whole hour. Like, I don't want to reach up to the tree and grab anything. I already got my bow. I lean it on my leg. I got my release hook to it a lot. I got the camera set up just in a big pan, zoomed all the way out where I think he's going to come through. So I just want to draw straight back and shoot. And it can be, man, when you're hanging there like that for an hour more it can be painstaking when you can't move so that's the only bad thing about hunting low or hunting in less cover like that is you just got to learn you can't move you got to be disciplined you know yeah i have an old primo's bow holder strap that you would hook it onto your belt and then it had like a it would hang down to like mid thigh and it had like a little cup for your cam to sit yeah. in and then you put the strap around your leg to kind of hold it in place but it's it's too small for like the newer like the big giant matthews cams so I was yeah, gonna, I was gonna see if I can't modify something like that because that was pretty handy. It takes a lot of load off of your, uh, your arm to be able to hold that thing for a long time. I, uh, I might have something in the works on that already. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just an FYI. <laughs> yeah, I found that too. The big cams on my bow don't fit in that thing either, and it doesn't have the molly to hook on your saddle or like you know, where it needs to be on the saddle, which I think it'd have to be almost on the bridge loop somewhere. Yeah, it probably would because it, it wouldn't fit super well underneath to your actual belt. Yeah, and you couldn't, like, molly it in place because if you're leaning or in an awkward position, you need that loop to swing down so it's still holding your bow no matter what kind of position you're in. Because if you, I have it hooked to me, you know, fully secure, and I'm a leaner, and I go to sit like you do, then my legs bend, I couldn't use it. So you got to have it free mm. swinging, just like hooked on the top of the bridge loop or something, I think. Yeah. Well, if I if I sit into the tree, then usually I, I'm able to then set the cam pretty much right on top of my thigh. Yeah. And then just kind of hold the bow, you know, tucked in close to the bridge. That seems to work okay. But yeah, when I'm standing, that's usually, I mean, if you have a sidebar, like a big, long 10 or 11 inch sidebar, then you can usually stick that in your hip and you can take off quite a bit of the load of the bow also. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't run a sidebar. I just had a front stab on mine. Yeah. So yeah, that'll be an interesting thing. Once I get that figured out, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. I send you, send you one to try out. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. It's little things like that, man, that guys just don't think about that. It's amazing what little things you do don't think you need that you actually need yeah it i think you know two people that i that have recently you know heard about her talk about kind of the importance of i guess what is or what isn't important i think i heard john eberhardt 
talking about it recently and Cody DeQuisto, I think too, when they're talking about, and, and I think actually the third person that comes to mind is, um, some podcasts I listened to not too long ago with, uh, Bobby Worthington, where they're just talking not about right. like, just, just talking about like what separates the guys who make the kill versus the guys who just get the opportunities. And it's all, yeah. it's all little things like that, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. It's the little details, all that. Like, I don't really carry that much stuff, man. The more I've grown into my hunting life, the less stuff I want to carry. Like, I just don't use a lot of that stuff, so I just dump it. And I don't know. I don't really try, like, 30 different kinds of gear. I'm not a gearhead is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Like, I just want the bare minimalist, what I need to get the job done. I'm more focused on the kill than like how much weight I'm carrying or how much one item weighs more than another or whatever. Like, I mean, it's kind of important, but it's not like what makes the hunt to me. I'm trying to just focus on killing the deer, I guess. Like everything I do is more focused on just getting the job done. Like, I guess my personality is a lot of guys, though, it's, it's an adventure, which is true. Like hunting is an adventure and you can enjoy your time outside, but I'm just so goal focused and, the way my mind works it's like a chess match like my my sole goal is to kill that deer like that is my so everything i do is like i'm focusing on that Mm -hmm. and if i don't think it's helping me or i need it i'm not using it at all i'm just doing my own thing i guess yeah yeah but i think but i think as i grow too like I focused on just learning the deer and the sign and how to hunt the deer and all about the kill that I kind of fell behind in the gear game a little bit, I guess. So now like I'm spending extra time to try to catch up on that side of my knowledge too, to see if there's like more things that I haven't thought about or stuff like that. Or like talk to guys like you, like you use way more gear than I do, or you know about it more than I do. So I'm trying to learn it. Even like Carl is like asking him a ton of, ton of questions about stuff just trying to learn even though when he's talking my mind's just like what (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean it's just like dude i'm just trying to be as well-rounded as i can you know i think the killing part's the hardest part of all hunting and the gear is kind of the easiest but it's like i started with the hardest stuff first and now i'm like backtracking into the easier stuff yeah i think that's that's a good way to do it you look at the you know a pyramid the foundational stuff versus the you know the, the building blocks versus the you know icing on the cake type stuff yeah exactly and then if guys do want to reach out to you and have additional questions is what's the best way to get a hold of you uh facebook or instagram it's just rendell eric and then i'm working on getting a youtube going soon but i haven't launched that yet That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.